Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website, thewhatpodcast.com, work. Also really good at identifying babies. Loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Welcome to Good for a Weekend. I'm Cressy. And I'm Allie. And you're listening to an individually recorded episode where one of us has some thoughts to share, and they aren't quite long enough for a full-blown episode. Yes, we're working on our regular length episodes, but had something to say in the meantime. Without further ado, welcome to Don't, don't Blame Allie. Me, Just me don't. crazy if it doesn't show ain't doing it right. Hey guys, welcome to the second edition of Don't Blame Allie. How are y'all doing? It's been a minute. I just want to start this episode, and I really thought long and hard about this, but I really want to start this episode with a quick mental health check because I know this week has not been the easiest for Taylor Swift fans everywhere. Currently, I am sitting in my bed with my microphone, and it is 7 a.m. on a Thursday, March 4th, the day that this is being released, and I am just going to try and keep this as raw and unedited as possible. I got home last night and started pulling all my thoughts together for the script, and I was going to keep it quick and breezy and fun. And then it turned into 4,800 words and a 10-page script. So here we go. I'm going to try and do this in one take. So wish me luck. LFG, let's go. So before we get into the actual content of this edition of Don't Blame Allie, Rebecca Harkness, and Marjorie Finlay, I feel like we really have to address the news and attention regarding Taylor Swift this week, specifically on social media. So like I mentioned, I really debated how I was going to do this episode and whether I should bring this up on this week's episode or not, since it is such a hot button topic this week. And the attention Taylor has been getting on Twitter is frankly not positive to say the least. The last thing that Cressy and I want to do 
is seem or come across as insensitive or indifferent to really important issues and points of view from people all over the world today and, you know, the really important issues that are happening in the world today, frankly. And we know that that is a goal for Taylor as well. That being said, let's quickly cover what has caused the spiral of negative attention on Taylor this week. On Twitter on Monday, Taylor tweeted a screenshot of a joke that was made at her expense on the Netflix show Ginny and Georgia. The quote that's screenshotted in Taylor's tweet from the show says, quote, What do you care? You go through men faster than Taylor Swift. End quote. We've heard it all before. We've seen this film before. <laughs> but going on, in response to this, Taylor's tweet reads, quote, Hey, Ginny in Georgia, 2010 called and it wants its lazy, deeply sexist joke back. How about we stop degrading hardworking women by defining this horseshit as funny? Also, at Netflix, after Miss Americana, this outfit doesn't look cute on you. Happy Women's History Month, I guess. End quote. So, from my point of view, and this is going to come as a shock to no one, Taylor deserves to stick up for herself. God knows how much money Netflix made from releasing Miss Americana, where Taylor talks about important issues surrounding being a woman in the industry that she is in and all the things that come with that. I mean, Taylor literally puts her heart on the line in Miss Americana and Netflix profits. And then so now Netflix comes around with a show that makes a joke, essentially continuing the tradition of slut shaming that Taylor has very publicly faced early in her career and honestly continues to face today, as evidenced here with this joke in Ginny and Georgia. And so I've been, you know, really thinking this over for a minute now because I saw the tweet on Monday. I was super ecstatic. I was seeing all the positivity, you know, obviously a lot from other Taylor fans. And then I saw everything begin to spiral and suddenly it feels like 2016 all over again. Last night, I was talking to some of my neighbors here in Charleston and I hear it even from my friends. People saying, oh, well, Taylor did date a lot of men. You know, she shouldn't take herself so serious. Blah, blah, blah. We've heard it all. In response to that, all I have to say is imagine being Taylor Swift or a celebrity being followed around 24 seven by cameras and every man or woman you're seen with in the public assumes it is your boyfriend or girlfriend. I don't need to say it because it really shouldn't even have to be defended, especially at this point. But Taylor had a very normal dating life for someone in her 20s. And regardless of what's considered normal or not, I don't give a fuck. Everyone deserves to be able to live their life the way that they want it. Period. Long story short, I am happy that Taylor gives no fucks in that tweet. You go, girl. Go off. She is defending herself and she has every right to. And I will be there to shut down haters that come for Taylor and her dating life every step of the way. And this is because, truth be told, misogynistic and sexist ideals are installed in all of us from a very young age, whether we like it or not. And please don't cancel me. Also, I'm about to use one of my grad school words, but hegemonic masculinity is prevalent 
in almost everything we do, our TV shows, our movies, our music, what we are told should be our quote unquote morals, our careers, and often even our schools. And the worst part is for the majority of our lives, we are a passive audience to it. And then slowly we begin absorbing these beliefs and standards for women without even realizing or making our own choices about our beliefs. They're just installed into us, these beliefs about what's right or what's wrong. It comes from learned behavior, from years of being told what we should or shouldn't be and what we should or shouldn't do. And it becomes ingrained into our belief system by this dominant culture that exists everywhere. I mean, there's not a single place in the world that doesn't have a dominant culture that affects, you know, everyone's beliefs in some way. And it causes people to react to Taylor and judge her for sticking up for herself and her rights as a woman. And I'm not just limiting this fact to just Taylor. I'm just in this scenario, we're talking about Taylor. Obviously, this applies to all women. It's not like anyone is shouting to the world, Taylor doesn't deserve rights or, you know, even worse, women don't deserve rights. No one is saying that. And that's, you know, that's the big defense. We're not saying that women don't have rights, whatever. But these dominant ideals that I'm talking about of what people think women should or should not be do affect people's reactions to Taylor when she is merely standing up for herself. People want Taylor to be this perfect, kind, polite person in the corner that just takes everything that's dished out at her without saying a single fucking word. And honestly, I'm tired of it. Her sticking up for herself does not make her a bitch. It makes her a competent human that has every right that a man does to stand up for herself. Okay, got through that. And that being said, haters are gonna hate, 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 hate. And honestly, I bet even Taylor anticipated the negative attention that would be caused by her tweet. I mean, there's no way that she didn't see this coming. I feel like she knew the risks involved and she said, you know what? Fuck that. So you go, girl. Love it. Keep doing it. And the unfortunate truth is, though... As a result of this tweet, oh, um, this tweet has also ignited some not so great, not so positive results. And I'm talking beyond negative attention on Taylor. In the perfect world, Taylor would tweet her tweet and people would read it for what it was and the world would just keep spinning. I love people who love Taylor Swift, but unfortunately, some of the impending results of this tweet have resulted in a lot of unfair and unjust attacks and threats on the cast of Ginny and Georgia. Even further, we are witnessing a reemergence of, you know, the hashtag Taylor Swift is over party on Twitter. And Taylor's being called many names on Twitter and probably other social media alike. There are many accusations being thrown around that I'm not going to go into here. And y'all know I love Taylor and will stand by her. But for the sake of remaining sensitive to everyone's perspective, even the haters, I'm not going to comment on this attention because honestly, we all walk in different shoes and experience the world differently. What I will mention is the obvious, or what I would hope would be the obvious. Attacks should not be being made on the Ginny and Georgia cast. 
I did my entire master's thesis on sexism and misogynism in the television and film screenwriting industry. And honestly, this joke, it's not a surprise. Very predictable. And like Taylor said, the joke is also truly lazy and frankly, pretty boring and pretty overused. It's likely that this joke made it past several screenwriters who edit the scripts for the show, the directors, the producers, every head honcho in the room probably saw this joke and didn't, you know, even flinch. If I had to guess, most of these people were most likely men. And I don't hate men. All I'm saying is the screenwriting world is notoriously male dominated. And a lot of these men are not the most forward thinking in terms of respecting women, because frankly, in the male dominated industry that they're in, they haven't had to be forward thinking about women because they've been getting away with shit for years. There is actually an entire test in the screenwriting world known as the Bechdel test that literally provides a way for people to analyze the amount of times two women are on screen in a TV show or movie and talking about a topic other than a man. And spoiler alert, there are a lot, a lot of popular movies and TV shows that don't even pass this test because the characters played by women are literally only only seen exclusively together on the screen without a male character if they're talking about a man. I wish I was exaggerating. I wish I was being dramatic right now, but no. This like this test if you really want to like go down a rabbit hole, Google the Bechdel test, B E C H D E L test online and see all the movies that only show two women characters talking about men and literally nothing else. Cause you know, what else do we have to talk about? So let's now flash forward to this Taylor joke in Ginny and Georgia, a girl talking to another girl about how many men she goes through and comparing it to Taylor's love life who shouldn't even be being brought up it's not surprising. It's a double whammy. And that being said, I can guarantee you, guarantee you, the actress was not the one who came up with that line. So stop coming after her, people. And I haven't seen the show, Ginny and Georgia, but I can also pretty much guarantee you that this same actress is also probably dying to play a role that talks about something more than just men. So please, leave her alone. Oh God, okay. I think I'm, I think I'm done now. I think I'm ready to continue to the actual episode now. That took me a minute. I just want to say, if you have been having a hard time with the negative attention Taylor is getting this week, rest assured, the devil works hard, but tree pain works harder. Taylor will get through this. Also, I'm sure everyone listening also has a lot to say about what's been going on. So hit the Discord. We all need a group therapy sesh. Let's talk it out. Let us know your thoughts on everything that's happening on social media this week revolving around Taylor on the Good for a Weekend Discord, which you can find a link to on our link tree in our bios on Instagram and Twitter, both at GFA Weekend. And that being said... 
for this edition of Don't Blame Allie in such a timely and eventful week, I chose to focus on two other strong-ass women from the folklore and Evermore eras. In this episode, I'm going to just provide you some fun facts, a little bit of a light history about the women who inspired two of Taylor's songs this past year, Rebecca Harkness from Folklore's The Last Great American Dynasty, and of course, Taylor's grandmother, Marjorie Finlay, from none other than Evermore's Marjorie. Also, I might be crazy, but I think this is the way Taylor would have preferred to kick off Women's History Month. So instead of focusing on the negativity, let's all sit back, relax, and daydream about the world of two very true women, Rebecca Harkness and Marjorie Finlay. Um, so if you're listening to this episode and you're hearing dogs barking in the background, I'm very sorry. I wish it was my golden retriever, Annie, but alas, she is with my boyfriend, Sam, and these are just barks from the hundreds of dogs that live in my apartment complex. I love dogs, though, but goddamn, keep it quiet. Anyways, let's start with Rebecca Harkness from the last great American dynasty. This is just a brief overview of some fun facts that I think would lighten the mood for the week, but I will have all of my sources where I got this information linked in the show notes if you're interested. Maybe you want to do a little research yourself. I would like to start this portion of the episode with my personal favorite line from The Last Great American Dynasty, which I think encompasses the confidence and level of no fucks we should all aim for, and that is... I had a marvelous time ruining everything. Oddly enough, that is also what I say every time I get something wrong in any of our episodes. So, for example, thinking Aaron Dessner was Bryce Dessner in the Long Pond Sessions. My bad, they're identical. So if you find any mistakes or anything I left out, please let us know in the Discord. I prefer that you let us know, so... I really appreciate everyone keeping me in check. Seriously, if you're not in the Discord, you should be. We're having a lot of fun. So, continuing. As I'm sure most of you already know, in Taylor's song, The Last Great American Dynasty from Folklore, Taylor sings about her home in Rock Hill, Rhode Island. Known by the nickname given to it from Rebecca and Bill Harkness, Holiday House. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Taylor says that the first time she found out about Rebecca Harkness was when she was being walked through the property by the real estate agent. Taylor says, quote, As soon as I found out about her, I wanted to know everything I could. So I started reading. I found her so interesting. And then as more parallels began to develop between our two lives, being the lady that lives on the hill that everyone gets to gossip about, I was always looking for an opportunity to write about her, and I finally found it, end quote. And so we flash forward to the last great American dynasty of folklore era, and we have an absolute heartfelt bop. If you are unfamiliar with Taylor's mansion in Rock Hill, Rhode Island, known as Holiday House, just think about her infamous 4th of July parties. I would have to say that the majority of those photos that are popping into your head from those 4th of July parties are all at the Holiday House being referenced in The Last Great American Dynasty. Taylor has also hosted some of her secret sessions for 1989 and Reputation 
at the same house. And can I just take a second to say, imagine if Taylor had been able in a non-pandemic world to host secret sessions for folklore and then the last great American dynasty plays while you're literally in Holiday House. Think about her speech, people. The speech introducing the song. What a magical moment that would be. Anyways, back to Rebecca. Rebecca was born in 1915, and according to Wikipedia, Rebecca and her husband Bill built Holiday House in Rock Hill, Rhode Island in 1930. I would love to recount all the amazing details of Rebecca's story to you for the first time, but in all honesty, almost everything Taylor sings about in The Last Great American Dynasty is true. The only lie I have been able to find so far from the song is when Taylor sings, died the dog a key lime green. Rebecca actually died a cat key lime green instead of a dog. It's honestly unclear why Taylor changes just this tiny little fact. But in um, one of the articles that I found, I can't remember which one, I'm sorry. But in one of the articles, they say it's due to Taylor's love of cats. So she couldn't possibly sing that Rebecca died a cat, key lime green. That would be cat abuse. Make it a dog. I don't know. I'm a dog person. But honestly, I kind of believe it because Taylor has definitely done stranger things for her love of cats in the past. But beyond that, Taylor literally pretty much tells the truth about everything. Let's just start going down the line. First, Bill really was the heir to the Standard Oil fortune. To put it even more broadly, his family was in business with the Rockefellers. So you know that they were rolling in the dough. So according to one of the articles I found, the Harkness fortune at the time that Rebecca was alive and, you know, during this entire setting of the song, their Harkness fortune from Standard Oil would have been something synonymous with $800 million today. That's a lot of dough. Also, Bill really did die of a heart attack in 1954. And after Bill's death is when Rebecca really starts stirring up the town. She did a lot of things with the Harkness fortune. Girl did not waste any time when it came to spending money. For instance, one of the lines from The Last Great American Dynasty says that Rebecca filled the pool with champagne. And according to the Times, this is not a joke. Rebecca really did clean her pool out with Dom Perignon. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. The really expensive champagne. I'm not sure how this would work for cleaning purposes or why she was doing it for cleaning other than the fact that it is, of course, alcohol. But oh my god, I would definitely prefer swimming in a pool of champagne personally rather than cleaning a pool with champagne. I'm just like, how much champagne was this? Was this literally, uh, why don't we just bring it up? Was this literally a champagne sea from, of course, the song This is why we can't have nice things from Reputation Era, where Taylor sings, jump into the pool from the balcony, everyone's swimming in a champagne sea. 
is that what we're working with here? Or did she like literally have Dom Perignon in one hand, a sponge in the other, and just started cleaning the pool? I mean, I doubt that she even cleaned the pool herself. I'm like, I just have so many thoughts. Were they literally swimming in Dom Perignon? I need to know. Or was this just truly cleaning purposes? What was the extent of the champagne in the pool? I'm dying. Also, according to Elle, the Times also reported that, among other things, Rebecca Harkness, quote, moved hundreds of thousands of dollars from one bank to another for the pleasure of confusing her accountants, believed in reincarnation, and filled her fish tank with goldfish and scotch, end quote. So what I'm gathering here is that there might be a common theme of alcohol, I'm not saying Rebecca was definitely an alcoholic, but girl got down with some booze. Rebecca also, though, did a lot of really great things with the fortune, too. For instance, Rebecca funded a lot of medical research with, you know, the fortune that was left to her. She also sponsored the Joffrey Ballet, a whole ass ballet. She sponsored it. In the same interview from Entertainment Weekly, Taylor says that anyone who's been to Holiday House, quote, knows that I do the tour where I show everyone through the house and I tell them different anecdotes about each room because I've done that much research on this house and this woman. So in every single room, there's a different anecdote about Rebecca Harkness. If you have a mixed group of people who've been there before and people who haven't, the people who've been there are like, oh, she's going to do the tour. She's going to tell you the story about how the ballerinas used to practice on the lawn and they'll go get a drink and skip it because it's the same every time. But for me, I'm telling the story with the same electric enthusiasm because it's just endlessly entertaining to me that this fabulous woman lived here. She just did whatever she wanted, end quote. Also, according to Ellen, reported by The Times, after Bill's death, Rebecca renovated Holiday House and installed eight additional kitchens and 21 bathrooms. I'm not exactly sure why eight additional kitchens would be necessary in any scenario for anyone like is she hosting a bake-off or maybe she just wants different scenery every time she cooks breakfast or maybe she doesn't want to clean a kitchen before she wants to cook again or maybe she makes the appetizers at one kitchen main course at another and dessert somewhere else i've thought through a lot but i also think rebecca most likely had a staff to help her with these sorts of things so honestly jury's out. It's probably just so there was enough kitchen capacity to host really lavish events is when I'm kind of, you know, that's kind of my assumption at this point. But Taylor is sitting pretty with eight additional kitchens in her home in Rhode Island. But moving past all of that, unfortunately, Rebecca Harkness died of cancer in 1982. And for all of her life, she was known as the topic of a lot of gossip and was pretty much always stirring up some kind of chaos in her town. This is one of the main reasons I've already mentioned that Taylor has said she really resonates with Rebecca. They're both major points of gossip, especially in Rock Hill, Rhode Island. Even though she really never actually knew Rebecca, Taylor has said a lot that, you know, she feels that there's a lot of similarities between the two. 
And for one last fun fact about Rebecca herself, when she died, I guess I shouldn't call this fun. Interesting. When she died, Rebecca's daughter reportedly carried Rebecca's remains in a Gristades shopping bag. I'm not sure how to pronounce Gristades. It's spelled G-R-I-S-T-E-D-E-S. But when I read this, I assumed it had to be some kind of designer bag that I'm not socially aware enough to be, you know, to recognize the name of. But nope. Gristades, or Gristides, however you say it, is a grocery store. Rebecca's daughter was carrying Rebecca's remains in a grocery bag. So, make of that as you will, Rebecca was still stirring chaos even after she died. Honestly, goals. And so, past that, another really big reason why Taylor probably resonates with Rebecca is because, much like Rebecca, Taylor has not always been super accepted by her Rhode Island neighbors. According to Elle, when Taylor bought and moved into Holiday House, some of Taylor's neighbors posted no trespassing signs with the line, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Not exactly the most friendly of neighbors. I was honestly genuinely surprised to hear this because from my point of view, of course, like who wouldn't want to be Taylor Swift's neighbor? But apparently, a lot of her neighbors didn't really like the presence of her security team, which I'm sure is extensive, or the paparazzi that would follow her, which is understandable. Or, of course, all the fans like us who are probably suddenly booking vacations to Rock Hill, Rhode Island, especially around 4th of July, to just try and catch a glimpse of, you know, Taylor and her bitch pack friends from the city. And... I know that those 4th of July parties in particular definitely ruffled some neighbor's feathers. I mean, with the amount of paparazzi that's probably already there because Taylor's there, the fact that, you know, she's bringing people like Blake Lively and Gigi Hadid like into the mix and Ryan Reynolds and Tom Hiddleston. And like, think about all those pictures of Taylor Swift and Tom Hiddleston in the waves when he was wearing the I Heart TS shirt. Like, they're... There is probably hella paparazzi out there. And, you know, all those, you know, pictures of Taylor walking the beach, they probably had paparazzi following them, probably at a distance. But, you know, it definitely affects the presence in Rock Hill. But that's not Taylor's fault. Taylor has the right to live wherever she goddamn pleases. And I just, you know, there's just some unfortunate truths about being a celebrity and having your privacy invaded. I'm sure that Taylor does not want to piss off her neighbors with all of the paparazzi outside of her door. I would have to assume Taylor doesn't really want them there either. Anyways, I have to mention another controversy that surrounds all the attention between this supposed feud between Taylor and her neighbors in Rhode Island. According to Vulture, Taylor wanted to rebuild a seawall on her own property, which consists of some beach area that borders the public beach. There was a lot of backlash on Taylor for this because a lot of Rock Hill residents thought it would affect the public beach access and surfing that the beach was popular for. Also, according to Vulture, because of Taylor's seawall proposal, the Rhode Island governor 
Gina Raimondo proposed a tax literally known as the Taylor Swift tax that would tax second homeowners in Rhode Island who purchased homes over $1 million. This was eventually not passed. The Taylor Swift tax is not a thing today. And that would be obviously for very obvious reasons. But Taylor's Rhode Island welcome was pretty tumultuous, to say the least. But anyways... That pretty much provides you with a brief analysis of Rebecca Harkness and why Taylor Swift resonates with her so much. I hope this changes the way you listen to The Last Great American Dynasty. Definitely the more I've learned about Rebecca and Taylor's experience in Rhode Island, the more I feel like I appreciate the song. And with all that being covered, let's talk about the next very important lady in this episode. None other than Taylor's grandmother, Marjorie Finlay. Marjorie was born on October 5th, 1928. Shout out to my friend, Samantha. That is her birthday. And also, Samantha, listen to the podcast. Anyways, Marjorie was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and she died on June 1st, 2003 in Taylor's hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania. Still unclear whether it's Reading or Reading. Uh, someone please let me know because it's a constant struggle. But Marjorie died in Reading, Pennsylvania at the age of 74, making Taylor only 13 years old when Marjorie died. The song Marjorie is also the 13th song on Evermore. I don't think this is a coincidence. Marjorie is credited by Taylor, among many others, as Taylor's early inspiration to pursue music. I highly recommend watching the lyric video for Marjorie. I hadn't before last night, and it's filled with home videos and family photos of Marjorie, as well as Marjorie and Taylor. There's a picture of Marjorie holding Taylor when she was literally born, and even a video of Taylor sitting on Marjorie's lap at the piano. I was literally bawling. I don't know what was like in the water last night, but I was sitting there with tears in my eyes watching this Marjorie lyric video. I also think that this lyric video is especially special because Taylor did not have to share those deeply personal family moments and she chose to. It's also like the only lyric video from Folklore and Evermore not set to, you know, like a pretty much static image of like waves crashing or champagne bubbling. So, I I mean, I think that's, like, pretty symbolic as well. But moving past all of that, in an interview with Zane Lowe where Taylor talks about Marjorie, Taylor says, quote, The experience writing Marjorie was really surreal. I was kind of a wreck at times writing it. I would sort of break down sometimes. It was really emotional. One of the hardest forms of regret to work through is the regret of being so young when you lost someone that you didn't have the perspective to learn and appreciate who they were fully. I'd open up my grandmother's closet and she had beautiful dresses from the 60s. I wish I had asked her where she wore every single one of them. Things like that. My mom will look at me so many times and say, God, you're just like her. End quote. Okay, so also reading this and like hearing her say that in the interview with Zane Lowe, I was also crying. I mean, oh my God, the hardest form of regret to work through is the regret of being so young when you lost someone. Holy shit, Taylor, you do not need to give me chills like that on a Wednesday night. 
Also, not to point out the more, you know, shallow level features of this quote, but to me, this kind of explains all of Taylor's, like, 60s looks. I think it was, like, from the Speak Now era or Red era and, like, the super high-waisted bathing suit she used to wear because, you know, she really resonated so much with her grandmother Marjorie and she always saw Marjorie's, like, fabulous 60s wardrobe. You know, I could see where that could influence her love for that kind of 60s look she was really into for a minute. Also, a lot of people compare pictures side by side of Taylor with the dark hair in the Wildest Dreams music video to pictures of Marjorie, and the resemblance is honestly pretty shocking. According to Gossip Cop, Marjorie was raised in St. Charles, Missouri, and got her bachelor's in music from Lindenwood College, now known as Lindenwood University, in 1949. Marjorie worked as a bank receptionist before ultimately winning a talent contest on an ABC show called Music with the Girls, which she then toured with for 15 months. Also, according to Gossip Cop, after marrying Robert Finlay, Marjorie and Robert lived in several places in South America while Marjorie was pursuing her opera and music career. They lived in Cuba, Venezuela, and Puerto Rico, where Marjorie would perform in concerts, operas, and supper clubs. In Puerto Rico, Marjorie actually hosted a bilingual variety show called El Show Pan Americano and sang in the Puerto Rico Symphony Orchestra. On top of all that, Marjorie also released her own album in Mexico. So you can easily see, like, not only was Marjorie a successful opera singer, she had a pretty, you know, unique and pretty wide-spanning career. We had, like, a 1960s Taylor Swift on our hands. And according to fandom, Marjorie was actually Taylor's first picture on Instagram on October 26th. 2011. I think that to say that Marjorie really had a profound influence on Taylor is probably a gross understatement. In the song Marjorie, probably like you all already know, Taylor sings, watched as you signed your name Marjorie, all your closets of backlog dreams and how you left them all to me. Taylor is literally relating Marjorie's dreams of being in music and being an opera singer to her own dreams that led her to where Taylor Swift is today. Taylor also says that she feels like Marjorie is still around her. Taylor said that sometimes Marjorie even visits her in her dreams and what died didn't stay dead. In the song, you can actually hear Marjorie singing with Taylor at one point after she sings the line, and if I didn't know better, I'd think you were singing to me now. And then we literally hear Marjorie, and it gives me goosebumps every single damn time. To summarize everything I've spoken about in this episode, I pretty much just want to emphasize how much we should all celebrate badass, strong women like Taylor, Rebecca, and Marjorie. To all my ladies listening, you are badass and strong and so amazing in so many different ways. And don't worry, any men who are listening, I believe you are badass and strong and amazing in so many different ways as well. And I really believe Taylor truly embodies this and we all should too. Never ever 
be so polite that you forget your power, but also never wield such power that you forget to be polite. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to this edition of Don't Blame Allie. You all literally mean so much to me and Cressy, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And before I leave, while I still have my mic, I'm going to risk it all. (laughs) I cannot end this episode without one last time standing at the cliffside screaming, give me a reason. Has the trilogy been a hoax this entire time? I know people are probably going to come after me for this. And I know Taylor has given us so much in the past year. We can't possibly be greedy little monsters begging for another album. But there is just so much still hurting my head about this. Is anyone else with me? Is anyone else's head spinning? Am I the only one? I was so convinced the trilogy was real. And after the Fearless announcement about Fearless re-recordings coming out on April 9th, obviously I'm ecstatic, but also I felt this like dying hope inside of me. The hope that the trilogy still was alive. And people are going to hate me for this, but like there are still some loose ends that still make me think there could be a trilogy somewhere out there in the Taylor universe just floating around trying to find us, trying to find its way home. This will be the last thing I say about the trilogy. I half promise. Here we go. I don't know if you all saw the fake mock-up of the album cover for what would have been Taylor's trilogy album, and if you felt your heart explode like I did when it was debunked as just a fake. Basically, someone posted a fake album cover and back cover. It featured pictures of Taylor in the ocean in a very folklore evermore type scene, and it even had a track list. And if it wasn't for this damn track list, I probably would still be believing it was real to this day. But the whole reason that this fake album cover and track list has been debunked is because the track listed included a misspelling of a supposed featured artist's name. They misspelled the name. If that name hadn't been misspelled, God knows how many people would be out there believing it was real still. I know it's fake, but since this point, I have not been able to get the idea of a trilogy album involving Taylor and Water out of my head, and it's for one simple reason. The Cardigan music video. I'm going to share my theory on this. In the Cardigan music video, Taylor starts in a candlelit cabin at the piano. This symbolizes folklore. Next in the Cardigan music video, Taylor enters the piano, which then transports her to a magical looking place with, dare I say, a lot of ivy and greenery and a big waterfall on a cliff, which really, really looks like Neverland to me from Peter Pan. This symbolizes Evermore. Think about the Tinkerbell imagery from Willow. Then. In the Cardigan music video, Taylor enters the piano again, which brings her to the middle of the ocean. 
we're all familiar with the video. She swims around there for a bit. She's, you know, she's holding on to the piano for dear life in this really wavy ocean before ultimately getting back into the piano only to be transported back to the cabin she started in. My theory is that the scene from the middle of the ocean symbolizes the trilogy album, the third album. She went to three scenes in the Cardigan music video. And my theory is that these three scenes symbolize the trilogy. Because let's be honest, do those three random scenes in the music video make any sense otherwise? Like there's really not a storyline there. She just goes in and out of a piano and is transported three different places. And you're lying to yourself if that second place does not look a hell of a lot like Evermore. Not to mention, she literally begins Evermore era with the Willow music video in the same place as the Cardigan music video cabin, holding an invisible string connecting the two together. I think she's sending us messages, people. And finally, if you go to the Cardigan lyric video, the scene behind the lyrics is literally, you guessed it, water, crashing waves. If there is a trilogy album that has a theme of water, then Taylor literally began the full circle of the trilogy from the beginning, starting with Cardigan. And I don't even want to get started on the three color themes she used for those scrunchies, candles, and the three versions of the cardigan in her merchandise store. The third mystery color scheme literally looks like water. And also, let's just talk about how water symbolizes rebirth. If she releases a trilogy album, it will be her 10th studio album, making Folklore Evermore and the trilogy 8, 9, 10, TS10, a perfect completion to 10 eras, a rebirth into her re-recordings and future eras. And I'm sorry, y'all, I might die on this hill. Like, we'll be three or four eras in the future, and I'll be sitting here waiting for this trilogy album. My hope is everlasting. I literally can't stop. I want to stop. Everyone's telling me to stop. Everyone is telling me it's not real, but I just can't stop believing. And I think it's my fatal flaw. All I'm saying is I'm not completely convinced the Fearless re-recordings are going to be Taylor's next release. I think if this trilogy album exists, she announced Fearless first to get us off her trail. We all figured out the trilogy. She was caught. She had to, you know, figure out a way to divert our attention. We all figured her out and she threw us a curveball. And for the most part, you know, it's working. I'm very excited about these Fearless re-recordings. Fearless was my first Taylor concert, but I'm still holding out hope for this trilogy. Oh my God, I wish I could stop. And I'm not really sure if I'm like the last trilogy believer left. Someone anyone, anyone out there, please, this is my cry for help. This is my SOS. Is anyone not getting sleep at night over this? Because I sure as hell am not. And with that, thank y'all for listening. I love y'all. Join our discord. 
submit some last minute evermore reactions before we record this sunday you can submit those reactions to gfaweekend at gmail.com follow us on twitter and instagram at gfaweekend give us a rating on apple Podcasts if you want to spread the love and gfa out don't blame me love made me crazy if it doesn't you ain't doing it right Lord save me, my drug is my baby I'd be using for the rest of my life I've been breaking hearts a long time and